So again, it really never ceases to amaze me, the remarkable people that just happen to be orthopedic surgeons that we have on the Ortho Show. Uh, this week, we're having Nick Kalivas, who's a professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of California, San Francisco, a sports medicine specialist. I like to call him the meniscus whisperer, super passionate about trying to save the meniscus and techniques and things. Uh, we're similar age, and he has a young son who is five years old. So we were commenting back and forth about he and Mick Jagger having sons the same age, uh, but has tremendous passions as far as a mentor, professor, and also is an F1 race car driver of all things. So a great show with a lot of diversity, cool topics. I know you're going to love it. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From medical media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another great episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows we bring you the best and the best in orthopedics. I'm super excited today to bring on a dear friend of mine, the meniscus whisperer, Nick Kalivas, who is an orthopedic surgeon professor at the University of California, San Francisco, who specializes in sports medicine, surgery of the knee and shoulder. Nick, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. And what a pleasure it is to uh, just have this ability to chat with you. Uh, West Coast, East Coast, couldn't be better. I appreciate it. It's one o'clock your time. So thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. Uh, but uh, no, look, you know, we always start at the same place. You have an interesting place in which you've started, you know, where it all began, that sort of thing. Now, I've done my research, so I know that you were born in Zimbabwe. And for our listeners, that's a country that's really sort of like due north to uh, South Africa. Um, and uh, so tell us about that. I mean, that was an interesting time. I know that apartheid was still going on in South Africa at the time. And, and tell us about your journey to medicine from Zimbabwe through South Africa. Sure. Thanks, Scott. So, I mean, it's it's now quite a while ago, and it seems fairly far away for me at this point. But I did grow up, you know, in what was um, the middle of Africa, basically. Although we had uh, a relatively civilized life, um, you know, we uh, we even had television, and we had the Brady Bunch, and we had a lot of the things that I recognized when I came here. Um, but it was a, you know, it was a closed. Uh, protected society, um, but you know we 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 grew up with the basics um, of a loving family, fantastic community, uh, respect for you know for everybody, and I pretty early on started uh, thinking I wanted to do I wanted to be in medicine and even surgery. Um, no, we didn't have anyone in our family who was uh, who was medical at all. Uh, but that was just something that, you know, by the time I hit high school was was pretty clear to me that's what I wanted to do. And um, that was available, the, you know, the British system, which we had essentially was uh, that if you uh, you finish high school, you did well enough, you did well enough on your A-levels, you could go straight to medical school, right? Um, no, no, no college uh, first. Uh, and that's essentially what I did. Um, I went to medical school in South Africa. And at that time, when I just about the time my father had actually already left, but just about the time 
that I was going to uh, medical school, my whole family upped and left and they went to, they came to the US. They knew one one single person in the whole place. They happened to be in San Francisco. That's how we ended up in San Francisco. If they were, if that that one single person had been in Boise, Idaho, we would have ended up there. Um, well, you, know, you got you got pretty lucky. I mean, San Francisco's I, a great spot. You know, so much of it is timing and luck. Everything in you know, you and my career has been timing and luck, and 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 then you throw in the hard work. Yeah, um, for sure. So, so that's sort of that's sort of how the the journey uh, sort of took me from one place to the other. All right. So Zimbabwe growing up, obviously there probably were no medical schools in Zimbabwe, or at least the better schools were going to be in South Africa. So you went to Johannesburg. To to Wit Waterstrand, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, yeah Waterstrand right. University. There was actually a very good uh, school in Zimbabwe, but I actually had gotten accepted into the South African school, and um, you know that was very good at that time. Once you graduated from what was called Vets, the shortened version, um, you immediately got your license to practice in the UK, so it was portable as well. Very um, cool. That's very unique because most. Uh, most medical school programs do not have that ability to sort of go from country to country. So to get this straight, so then your your family just up and left you, and they said, yeah. we're, go we're going to San Francisco. We hope you come and join us one day. You're going to still be training for medical school at the time. Yeah, I wasn't that unhappy about it. I mean, you know, <laughs> I was quite enjoying the freedom and, uh, uh, and independence of, of being sort of my own boss um, thousands of miles away. And I got to go you know, back to the U.S. for vacations um, and spend, you know, spend some time there and then go back. And, and, and honestly, medical school was fantastic. I had a fantastic time. And then when we finished, when I finished that, I went on and did an internship even in, in South Africa in a town called Durban, um, which is, you know, on the coast. And the, the, the hospital was on the coast, was on the, literally on the beach. Um, so that was another fantastic year. Uh, but then I had to face the music and say, what did I want to do next? I wanted to do an orthopedic residency and, you know, do that in South Africa, do that in England, maybe go to Australia. Family was all in America, but that was the hardest part. It was the hardest place to go. Uh, Canada was another choice. You know, there's lots of choices. But as an international medical graduate, they'll all tell you it's just a tough road. And I, again, timing and luck, I, I was able to find a research position that gave me an in to essentially get a residency spot. Yeah, now we've had a number of international uh, trained positions on the show, and you have to still do three years, if I'm not mistaken, right? You have to have three years postgraduate to be able to, and then you have that can get you into a residency if you can get the appropriate recommendations. I depends on the scenario. I was able to do about a year and a half of research, and uh, and then again the timing was that that's when the match opened up, and uh, and the and the the interesting little anecdote is I, I actually was interested in surgery and not so much in orthopedics, and I got into a categorical general surgery spot at UCSF, um, you know, which which was fantastic, and and that was awesome, and then within a two months of 
internship, I said, oh my God, I made a huge mistake. Yeah, you finally figured it out. We, where, where are the cool guys hanging out there? And, the orthopedic surgery yeah. department. And, and the next, surgery. yeah, the next rotation literally was orthopedics. And I was like, oh my God, I really have made a bad mistake because this is the one I really, well, really, really want to do. What and, was I thinking? I love it. Yeah, what uh, was I thinking? So anyway, that, that all worked out again. Uh, um, you know, well, it certainly wasn't easy at the time, but um, it worked out well in the end. Yeah, I mean, life, life is a journey, as you like to say, you know, as far as the, the the being in the right place at the right time and luck and, of course, hard work as well. And so and you you basically never left. I mean, you built yourself a career in, in San Francisco. It sounds like you did private practice for a little bit of time, but then you got the the desire to head back for faculty at UCSF and and you haven't looked back. How long have you been now at, US, at UCSF? So officially, uh, 2019, our practice was acquired by by UCSF, um, part of their sort of expansion program, building their sort of wider Bay Area network. Um, but I actually had, so I went into private practice and that was fantastic. We worked really hard. Um, and then about 2008, um, I, spoke, I spoke to Ben Ma about potentially uh, doing some part-time stuff at the university, a little bit of teaching, seeing some patients, doing some cases. And so, for uh, almost ten years, I was I was uh, you know I was a I was a university employee on Fridays. Every Friday was my day at UCSF, so I got to get both the private practice side really really nicely Monday through Thursday, Saturday and Sunday frequently too. But Fridays I was academic, and so that sort of was a, a relatively easy switch when we did that. My partners who came with me went, you know, from full private practice to, to an academic practice, but um, it's been a, you know, it's been a good move for us. Again, everything is timing for me. This was sort of the right time. It was just about the time my son was born. Um, it allowed me to deconcentrate on all the business and managerial side of running a private practice, which you know only too well um, and, and be a little bit more focused on uh, just just the orthopedic sides and just surgery, basically. I mean, that's like really cool to be able to have private practice, but then still be in an academic environment as well. And, you know, I noticed when your CV that, you know, what I love, the word mentor is such an important word here for the ortho show. You actually list your mentees, you know, that you've dealt with. And I just think that's so special that you recognize that relationship and you put it out there in the public for people to see. Uh, but that allows you you know, the world to be in academics, to do research, to be able to teach and and be a part. And then it was obviously a, a sort of a natural uh, transition. And you guys have a really impressive department. I got to say, I'm like, you know, if you look at the ortho show and you take a look, probably Columbia's number one. Yeah, Bill, I know Bill would <laughs> well, be listening. Reasons for but, that, yes. You know, and, and then the hospital for surgeon's sons. We've had a lot of those guys on too, <laughs> right? But I mean, we've had Alan Jang, we've had Sarah, we've had Sarah Edwards and Stephanie I mean you guys got some you got a lot going on out there it's pretty cool yeah it's a great department we're over 100 physicians now we've got eight uh, surgeons in the sports department uh, seven or eight you know I think we're, we're we're close to there somewhere um and um you know it continues to be a growing program so we're uh we're we're very we're I think we're a as 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 much as one can be a very collegiate and um well sort of formed uh, group at this point. 
I love it. So I'm not going to let I'm not going to slip by here. You know, you mentioned your six year old son. His son is it the son, correct? <laughs> five year old son. Yeah. So five year old son. So I got to bring it up. I mean, I don't know if everybody saw Mick Jagger as a six year old son as well. So I mean, you're in good company. I know it's a little late for you to to be a late bloomer as a father, but uh, congratulations, you and Mick are doing awesome. Well, I appreciate that. It's uh, it's maybe doing it a little bit backwards, you know, st <laughs> starting the family later instead of earlier. But there's definitely some advantages to that. I just hope that I can, you know, keep up with his energy. That's the that's going to be the that's going to be the long term concern. But so so good. It's been it's it's all worked out fantastically. It's allowed me to have a really good sort of career it's allowed me to have a, a side career racing cars that has you know really been fantastic for me and now i can now i can really concentrate on the family side so it's it's all good we're going to get to the cars don't get out of you but that because i think that's such a cool thing about you but um but no i mean you take you think about it that way you're an established orthopedic surgeon you've done all that crazy stuff of working weekends and trauma call and this that and the other and now you're established you're a professor and you can you can take time out for the things that matter and a work life balance to be able to have your son. So, God bless. I don't you know I, we go in my house. We have five. We go twenty eight, twenty five, twenty one, twenty one, and eighteen. They're all boys. So we you know like right now my youngest is in Rome, running around Ubering and clubbing while supposedly going to to, to college. But you know the big bigger they are, the bigger the problems and things just change. But God bless. Enjoy. I don't know how you do it. One is one is a lot of uh, a lot a lot of work for me. But uh, hey, man, uh, more power to you. We're not inter we're not interviewing for kindergarten classes anymore. That's for sure. So, <laughs> oh, good. All right. So, look, one of the things that I I really admire about you, uh, among so many other things, and I called you the meniscal whisperer, and you really sort of carved out a name for yourself and very passionate about hashtag save the meniscus, right? So, you know, we're contemporaries. I know. When I was growing up in my earliest years in the career, you know, we weren't we would we would make fun of the of the docs who would take out the meniscus, right? Like who, you know, they used to have this open operation where before you could scope it, they just take everybody's meniscus out. We want to guarantee that that person is going to get a knee replacement in 20 years. It was like a, you know, it's an annuity for orthopedic surgeons. But we would still very comfortably go in and arthroscopically remove a piece here, a piece there. It was just sort of what we did. And now there's been a major change. The pendulum has swung all the way to the point now where we're really trying to save as many meniscus uh, tears as we can. So tell us about the evolution for you and your practice as to why this is so important. Yeah, I think so in residency, I don't know if you remember Dill Cannon. He was one of my mentors and he actually was someone who was quite passionate about meniscus repairs. Um, and we spent a lot of time you know, as, as a resident with him doing meniscus repairs, I, I still laugh because he, he had a, uh, his, his sort of claim to fame was his record was 18 sutures in a meniscus, which I've not exceeded yet. Um, and that's what's, what's the, what's the 50, 50 lethal toxicity dose for of, suture material of, in the body? PDS or, uh, or at <laughs> I'm not sure, but, um, you know, so I did get some exposure to that and, um, and, and then, you know, I think, like you said, it's like, well, the main training we got, and for many, many years, there was quite a bit of meniscus resection. Um, and I saw that sort of changing, I don't know, around 2010-ish, you know, after the sort of first decade of the 2000s. And what 
Yeah, again, timing was everything. Um, I was introduced to Justin Salomon, who uh, invented the Soterix device. Um, By the way, you got, of course, you saw if you're doing pop culture, he was driving in his car with Sofia Vergaro yesterday. <laughs> it's like, you know, I said to my wife, I said, you better be careful, you know, us orthopedic surgeons, we got a lot going on, you know. Hollywood stars in, want to hang out with us. If we live in Hollywood, which, uh, yeah. So there you that's go. a true story. He's literally like dating Sophia Vergara right now. It's crazy. Yeah, I, but, I, 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 well, you know, you you and my wife are up on these things because she's the one who showed it to me. <laughs> oh, so you know. So, you know, I'm way up too, I'm way too up on pop culture. I admit it. I'm guilty. <laughs> anyway, so Justin was just developing this, this Soterix device and was asking for, uh, um, was asking me whether I, you know, have a look at the prototype, try it out on a cadaver and all that kind of stuff. And and I eventually became part of that process that that brought the Soterix um, out to market. And that really sort of stimulated my interest in repair. And then about, you know, in about the same time, uh, you know, other famous name, much more famous than me, the Leprods and the Critches and all those people started publishing more about repairs. And the combination of better techniques you know, newer instruments, uh, the, the second generation devices got better, the fast fixes and the, and the airs and those things, as well as biologics added into that. Um, and a sort of a renewed awareness of, of, you know, sort of saving the meniscus. And then of course, the big sort of thing that happened was that's right around the time that at least in the U.S., root tears started becoming recognized, right? And root Judy's tear- listening. Make sure my mother understands what a root tear is. <laughs> so root tear is where the meniscus doesn't just tear in its substance. It's where it actually, I call it a, a meniscus detachment. It actually detaches from the bone. And so, you know, when you say it that way, it's pretty clear that to fix the problem, you have to reattach it. It's a reattachment. It's not so much a repair of the meniscus, it's more of a reattachment. So that also came out and that opened a whole new field. Um, right about the time, of course, meniscectomy started, you know, well, really 2002, meniscectomy started becoming uh, a bad word. Uh, but it's taken 20 years for, uh, I think, the majority of people to really be thoughtful about what they're doing with menisci. Um, yeah. and so, you know, now we're at a point where I think there's 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 still people who take out you know a fair amount of meniscus, and there's still times that I do that, not often, but sometimes you just have to. Um, but I think it's a much more balanced approach, and there's now you know more guidelines to determining when's the when's a good time to take one out, when's a good time to leave it alone, and when's a good time to repair it. Absolutely wonderful description of the evolution of what's happened with the meniscus. You know, it just it's really quite remarkable in my career as well, sort of following that path. It's funny. I mean, I was the I was the one of the evaluators for my tech for for Justin for the Soterics. So got to meet him very early on and in sort of when the before things were really going well for him. And then obviously uh he did really well with Smith and Nephew bought the company. Uh, and has done well there. And I, you know, I love it. I mean, like the, the, the root tear, I describe it to my patients when I see that I'm like, if we don't fix this, it's a knee killer. Like literally you, we can watch your knee go through an aggressive arthritis pattern over the next several years. And you'll be looking at like a knee replacement and those patients, when you do fix it, it's amazing how much better they feel. They they feel better almost immediately. Uh, So recognizing that and making sure that you can take care of it. So 
You know, it's funny. I think of I think of you and Professor Michael Redler, you know, you know, Professor Redler does these amazing in-office videos of the patients that he's treated. I always look forward to his presentations. And then I'm always looking forward to the next Kalivas, Kalivas uh, meniscal repair video or challenge, be able to really keep things going. So I think it's really neat how you use social social media for education of something that really matters to you that you're passionate about, for sure. Yeah, I have found that I have found that a, a big benefit in terms of um, input and um, you know sometimes criticism, um, but just a way to sort of shape uh, my thoughts around you know what we're doing with meniscus repair and always trying to sort of push push the field forward. You know what what are we repairing? What are we not repairing? And then you know I'm really interested in 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 repair techniques and and really improving those because that's obviously it's 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 not the only piece to it by a long shot. You know deciding the right patient is probably the most important piece. And and many of the patients don't need the surgery, but um, I think if as we improve techniques like talking about um, root tears, for example, I'm now more often doing double tunnel um, root repairs using a centralization suture uh, than not. Um, because yes, we get great clinical results, but we know that when you MRI a lot of these patients, 30% of them still have extrusion. So we're not quite getting it where we need it to be. And I think that sort of evolution over time is what's really exciting, what I really loved about surgery. Well, keep challenging us, that's for sure. We look forward to to hearing all about it for sure. Um, all right, so so let's talk about something else that is a great passion of yours um, and where it all started and where it came from. But, dude, you're like a Formula One or two sort of race car driver. I'm like, come on. You're an orthopedic surgeon and you're running around driving Formula One vehicles all over the place. What's going on? How did this start? Yeah, so so I was always interested in motor racing from a kid. And I had a family who had zero interest. In fact, probably were like anti-motor racing. So it only started really happening for me once I left finished residency um, and could afford to essentially, and when I went into private practice, starting being able to afford indulging myself in habits that don't make a lot of financial sense, such as motor racing. Um, that's, that's, so, your, that's your six-year-old son, right? <laughs> uh, children are cheap compared to motor racing. I'll tell you that. Um, I, I don't know. Once you, once you get up to a multiplier of four or five, maybe not. But well, don't, uh, don't you have like Smith and Nephew as a sponsor for your vehicle or like a patch somewhere? No. My my, uh, my I only wish. Um, I'm I'm just not that good. Uh, but the bottom line is. Once I started residency, and once I finished residency, went into private practice, started earning a decent income, um, I could start the process. And that, you know, involved essentially going to a school for a weekend, uh, buying a car. Um, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And, and it got, you know, sort of a bit crazy at some point in time where I had, you know, multiple cars on multiple continents flying over to Europe four or five, six times a year, you know, for, for race weekends, coming back again, doing, a, you know, race weekends here. Um, and I gravitated mostly to the formula cars. Those are the single-seater cars that um, are purpose-built for racing. They're not production cars that have been modified. 
Um, and sort of the the ultimate the, the the ultimate series there is the Formula One cars, and you can buy and run and race old Formula One cars. And I had two. I've got one now, but uh, I had two: one in Europe, one here. Um, and that was a fantastic lifestyle. And and honestly, you know, I understand people like Steve McQueen talking about racing is everything out everything. So racing is life. Everything else in life is waiting. You know, it, it, it's addictive. It's addictive and expensive, uh, and and just exhilarating. And, and well, I mean, you know, nobody, nobody wants just one Formula One car on one continent. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to do it, you need at least two. I mean, come on, that's practical. It, it's just convenient if you want to, you know, fly back and forth a lot and and race a lot. And uh, I, you know, I had. I, I have had and I still race, but not to not not at that level anymore or not that frequently anymore. Um, and it's still, you know, a real passion. And I think you have to describe passion as the, the kind of thing that your account looks at you and says, you're an idiot. What the hell are you doing spending this kind of money on something that doesn't have any real return? So but that's a passion, right? You just it, it's worth it. Um, so, so Andrew Wickline, I'm, I'm sure you know Andrew. Yep. Um, he he describes race car driving a lot like actually surgery. I mean, details are so important, right? Timing is very important, um, and then sort of you know making sure that there are no mistakes, you know, along the process. So he describes it in a similar fashion. Do you find that to be similar or different? I've been asked that a lot. I think there are certain certain things. You know, like like what you mentioned, the preparation and all that. Um, uh, you know, not making mistakes. Um, I'll tell you that I think racing is a far more precise. If you're going to do it well, it's far more precise. Uh, it's far less forgiving of mistakes. Um, it's it's uh, it's far more intense. Um, you know, you get hot in a leather suit, but let me tell you. You get in a race car in a fire suit with your radiator tubes running right next to you on a hot day, and you've got you know, hundred hundred degree uh, Celsius water running you know through you, and you're sweating because you're trying to beat twenty other people doing the same thing. It's uh, <clears throat> it's intense, uh, but you know um, it's so rewarding. It's so exhilarating, and the other you know the other thing. There's two places that I just find myself extremely comfortable and content. One is when I'm scrubbed in the case, the patient's draped, and you give me the instrument. You, you put that scope in my hand, and there's almost like there's a the, the sort of a calming feeling comes along. Like, okay, I'm in control. This is this piece of equipment that I have in my hands is an extension of me. I've just, you know, I've done it so many times. I've got it in my hand. It's just an extension of me. And I get the same feeling when I get strapped into a race car and I put my hands on the steering wheel and I'm like, okay, here we go. Everything goes quiet. And you just, this is, this isn't this, this vehicle, this instrument is an extension of me. Those are the, that's the sort of comparison I see. Well, that's really cool. And what a great description of being in the operating room, you would think that for most of our listeners that aren't surgeons, maybe going to the operating room might be stressful. But for me in particular, it's probably one of the most calming, relaxing, fun, intriguing times of my day, you know, for and, sure. And challenging and all of those things, you know, you, you, you just, I just, I just, that's what I feel at the start of every case. It's like, 
here we go. This is just going to be wonderful. And and those so that's that's always um, that's always always the comparison that I make when I look at the two. Well, I'm going to leave the race car driving to you. But I, I well, I will enjoy sharing consensus stories on the surgeries and the patients that we care for as well. Listen, Nick, what a what a wonderful time to spend with you today. I think that your your history is truly unique uh, amongst our guests on the Ortho Show, which is what I love about our show. We bring on some of the most unique people with tremendous histories that just happen to be orthopedic surgeons, and uh, and you're no exception from your time in Africa to here and uh, mentoring to. Uh, your your wonderful time as with Peak Surgeon to your your five year old son and your amazing race car driving what what a cool story thanks for joining us well listen I appreciate it I'm looking forward to the next chapter maybe that'll be uh, robots we'll see that's uh, that's what I'm looking at now but um, I really appreciate that you invited me to the show so thank you for including me in that group I really appreciate it and always a pleasure to talk to you. It's uh, it is my pleasure. You are now an official, the Ortho Show alumni, Nick Kalivas. So Love great it. to have you on. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund. Hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.